But we don't have a plan yet of the Congress that is ready to go, shall we say. But that time is coming soon, and soon we will have to act not only to secure this important program, which has, through its lifetime, been the biggest um, uh, reason for the removal of elderly poverty that this country has suffered from. So it is an important safety now. But we'll also need to change this program in order to secure our nation's future. Uh, people, the sense that I get from my perch sitting there trying to serve Dave Camp, Chairman Camp and the other members of the Ways and Means Committee, is the public is now interested in what goes on. You used to be able to go and say, okay, it's good for 20, 30 years. Now, constituents are saying, well, wait a minute, what's your plan? They may not be sure what to do, but they want to know what's your plan. It's not good enough to say anymore, oh, it's going to be all right. So I think that's an important and an interesting development. Um, today, we have a great panel uh, of experts with us. And uh, we will kick that off there from all venues of the political spectrum. And uh, I'll introduce each one of them, and they'll give their brief remarks, and then after we're done, and I understand Maya is on her way, after we're done, they can take your questions. Um, the one thing I want to leave you with is, whatever we do with Social Security is going to have to be bipartisan. And that's going to mean everybody has to do the proverbial hold hands and jump together. Um, it's an important program. I think after what we saw with health reform, that is how public's going to want it to be. They're going to want it to be a bipartisan um, effort. And that they expect it to be something that everybody's going to embrace going forward. <laughs> now, our first person this morning, our panelists, is my former colleague at SSA, um, Dr. Andrew Figg. Andrew was the Deputy Commissioner. I was a Deputy Commissioner. <laughs> well, let's make that distinction. The government doesn't reward merit. He is now resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Prior to AEI, he was with us in Social Security where he oversaw a lot of tremendous research efforts and led uh, agencies uh, group with the uh, Social Security trustees. He's also worked uh, on Social Security reform for the White House and the National Economic Council, was on the staff of the President's Commission to Strengthen Social Security, and also with the Cato Institute uh, before joining us today. Please join me in welcoming Andrew Briggs. Because the economy is, is in poor shape. But over the long term, if you call it entitlements, 
it, the budget is more or less balanced. It may be too big, it may be too wasteful, but it's not going to you know, destroy the economy or anything. It's all the entitlement spending that's really driving this. And you know, entitlement spending is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid principally. Um, one area where I differ a little bit from the, the popular narrative is that the narrative is that health care is really the biggest problem and Social Security is not really the big one. I tend to divide it a little bit differently in my head. Or I divide it between the effects of the aging population, which means more people entering retirement, going on these programs, fewer people support them, and then the effects of rising health care spending per person, meaning each person is consuming more health care than they used to. If you put the two of them together, it means more people on these programs, uh, each one collecting higher benefits, you know, in the end world growth. But I mean, the narrative that came out certainly from the administration um, in the healthcare reform debate was, well, it's this health issue that's rising for capital spending, which is a big problem. If you actually look at the CBO numbers, population aging is by far the biggest driver of, of entitlement uh, spending over the next several decades. If you go out for the next two decades, Entitled or aging drives about two thirds the increase in population or in entitlement spending, health uh, per capita health spending only about one third. And the reason for that is that aging <coughs> aging accounts for one hundred percent of the cost increase in Social Security, but it also accounts for a good chunk of the cost increase in Medicare and Medicaid because you have the, the, those same uh, retiring baby boomers are applying for all three programs. So aging is something I focus on quite a bit, although I, I readily admit that we need to do a lot on the, on the healthcare side as well. <coughs> when I think about, excuse me, when I think about <coughs> an aging population, you know, the, the basic issue is smaller numbers of workers, smaller populations of workers have to support larger populations of retirees. I mean, it's a pretty simple sort of concept. So if you want to prevent this from just being a zero-sum game, where it's a fight between generations, the way to get around that is by making your economy and your population of workers as productive as they possibly can. The more they can produce, the easier it becomes to support those larger populations of retirees without sort of impoverishing the working age people. And when I think about this, I think there's kind of three things that public policy would want people to do when you have an aging population. The first is work more, meaning uh, more people participating in the workforce, more hours per day, more weeks of the year. The second is save more, which means uh, more people participating in, in, say, 401k or other employer-sponsored pension plans, uh, more people contributing, higher contributions to each. And the third thing is retiring later. The typical person claims Social Security at 62 or 63. If we delayed that, say, to 65, it would have a big impact on the economy and our capacity to support our retirees. This context, I think, makes it a little bit clearer why, in general, I would like to fix entitlements and Social Security as much on the benefit side and as little on the tax side as possible. When I think about if you to the degree you, you fix these programs by raising taxes, you're going to do three things. You're going to encourage people to work less with reward from working smaller. You're going to encourage them to save less because they're going to have less money to save and less need to save because the, the entitlement program will be larger. And they're going to retire earlier because their Social Security benefits will be higher relative to the after-tax wage they get from working. So just in, in a broad context, we have three goals that, that, which I think are pretty reasonable. And when you raise taxes, you're working contrary to all three of those things. So we can argue over how big the effect of raising taxes is, but it just seems to me that in general, you know, you want to be moving in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. So, so my basic take on this 
is to fix as much of these problems on the outlay side as we possibly can. And I think there's some evidence uh, in terms of how other countries have balanced their budgets that tends to back this up. I did a lot of work over the past six months or so looking at how other countries have gotten on top of their, of their budget problems. And there, there's a lot of research that's been done by academic economists, people at the IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, that shows that countries that try to balance their budgets by reducing spending are both more successful at reducing deficits and debt and produce better outcomes for economic growth than countries that try to balance their budgets by raising taxes. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazingly broad consensus in, in the academic literature on that countries that try to do it on the spending side and are more successful than those that, that try to do it on the tax side. So this kind of goes with common sense for me. And so I said, okay, in general, I'm, I'm a cheapskate on this. I prefer to cut benefits uh, as much as I possibly can. And this, I think, goes, uh, you know, especially for Social Security, excuse me, even compared to Medicare. <coughs> and the reason for it is that a reduction in Social Security benefits can easily be replaced by people's private savings. If you cut my Social Security, I'm going to save more in my 401k. Almost all middle and high income people can and will do that. So there's an easy trade-off there. If you, if you cut the Social Security, I save more. That saving is good for me, it's good for the economy, you know, good all around. Medicare, on the other hand, is a lot harder to do that. If we cut your Medicare benefits, it's not easy for you to make up that difference. Uh, the way Medicare rules work, you know, if, you're, uh, if they cut the compensation to your doctor, you can't easily make up that difference. It's illegal for you to top off the doctor, so you don't have a choice there. But it's also Medicare is an insurance program. Some people have very high health costs, some people have very low ones. That's much tougher for individuals to prepare for. So when I think about entitlements as a whole, to the degree we're going to raise taxes, I say save that for Medicare where I think it's more appropriate. That's even more reason, I think, that Social Security reform should focus as much as possible on just holding down costs. So of the two entitlements, I would focus uh, cost restraints particularly on Social Security. But I think one of the things where Social Security reform goes wrong is they see it solely as a budget problem. They say, okay, we've got this imbalance in the program, we've got to bring it back together. The problem is, if you see it just as a budget problem, there's also this sort of retirement security problem. The, the, the Social Security program is not as good as a social insurance or savings program as it should. As a safety net, it's very a leaky safety net. Um, we spend $725 billion a year in this program, and still 10% of seniors retire into poverty. We could eliminate poverty, give everybody a poverty level benefit for less than half of that. So, you know, for it, it's so I, I, the way I see it, we, we want to make I mean, the, the, the phrase I have in my head is sort of lean, clean, and not so mean. So lean means spending the money on the things that we really need to spend the money on. If we want to reduce or prevent poverty in, in retirement, we can do that. Um, yesterday, the Peterson Foundation had a, an event where a bunch of different think tanks uh, produced budget plans. I did the Social Security part for ABIs. And the basic benefit I proposed from Social Security would be a flat poverty level benefit going to every retiree, regardless of their earnings, regardless of their labor force participation. It simply says, we are going to ensure that people do not retire in poverty. So nobody's going to get less than the poverty line. Poverty will go from 10% to 0%. Um, but at the same time, nobody's going to get more than the poverty line. 
to make up the difference for middle and higher income people who need to get higher uh, income for retirement, we're going to automatically uh, sign everybody up for a workplace pension plan where they invest 5% or so of their earnings. If you combine this flat poverty level benefit with 401k investing 5% of earnings, the total benefit coming matches Social Security pretty well in terms of the generosity of benefits, in terms of the sort of progressivity of how people with different income levels are, are treated. But what you get is a plan that is far more effective at preventing poverty among the elderly, uh, more conducive to savings, better for the economy, more conducive for work uh, and, 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 and workforce participation. Uh, than the current system and does it at a lower cost over time. One of the things we obviously want people to do is retire later, work later. One of the things I propose has, a, has really two facets to it, and one would be to increase the early retirement age uh, from 62 to 65 so that people could not claim early. If they're disabled, they could get disability, but we don't want them <coughs> routinely spending a third of their adult lives in retirement finance by somebody else. So we're going to say you, you've got to wait till 65 to uh, claim benefits. The, the, the sort of economic model I used to project all these things, project that alone would, have a, would produce an increase in long-term gross domestic product of somewhere around 3%, which in today's terms comes to around $450 billion. That's a number I think the, the CBO would probably go along with. That's a huge, huge increase in the amount of money you get. Alongside that, though, I would eliminate the payroll tax for anybody 62 and older. So the two of those things are using a carrot and a stick. We're saying, look, we, you've got to work longer. You can't claim the 62 anymore. We're going to make it worthwhile for you and for employers to hire you. So we really make it worthwhile for people to stay in the workforce longer. If you put all of that together, you've got a plan with better poverty protection, more conducive to savings, uh, better in incentives to delay retirement, and does it at a lot lower cost, which leaves more money for what they're going to, for, uh, for other priorities in the budget, like Medicare, like Medicaid, they're tougher to get onto. I think just to end it, I'll talk a little bit about the prospects for reform. I'll try to do this very quickly. Um, to my mind, I'm actually, I'm an incurable optimist, but I think I need to be cured. I'm actually very pessimistic. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, you think we're, a couple of months ago, we were fighting over $38 billion in spending. My understanding is the agreement over that turned out to be well less than $38 billion in reality. The true amount they should have been fighting over was something around 20 times that much. That's how much you have to cut for increased taxes on an annual basis in order to get us a sustainable plan. If we're practically shutting the government down on $38 billion, we need to be fixing 20 times that much each year. We're in tough shape. So, you know. Buy gold, buy canvas. Um, you know, I just I mean, sooner or later things do get fixed. I got, I'll just be frank and say, I am. Social Security, you think, think this is the soft landing. We'll have a tough time doing it, but we're going to get a nice transition in. I'm just more and more afraid to be the sort of the hard landing, Greece style thing, the, you know, the idea of our, our bonds get downgraded, and everybody panics and says, we've got to do something now. Now, it will get fixed, it'll just get fixed in a very sloppy way where a lot of people get hurt. So I'd really like to get things done quicker than that, but I'm increasingly pessimistic as well. And on that sour note, I'm going over something. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>
the uh, Clinton health reform. He was working for Mr. Cooper. I was working for the health Republicans, and I got caught up in that one because they needed somebody who understood numbers. And after we were done with that, I thought, I'll go back to debt limits now. It's easier. Uh, but anyway, we're delighted, delighted to see David again. He's now a senior fellow for uh, health and physical policy at Third Way. Before joining Third Way, he was a senior fellow at uh, Progressive Policy Institute, which is an affiliate of the CLC. He was there for 15 years, I remember well, some of his writings. Uh, president Clinton appointed David to the President's Task Force on National Health Care in 1993. He, aside from working for uh, Mr. Cooper, he also worked for Michael Andrews of Texas as his LD and senior advisor. He also worked for uh, Congressman Jones of Oklahoma, another one of the person. Uh, please join me then in welcoming Dave Kendall. Thanks, Margaret. And uh, if we just work on a deal between the three of us up here in the panel, I think we should do this in a minute. Because <laughs> um, I largely agreed with, with, with most of what Andrew said. Uh, uh, but um, I wanted to uh, sort of echo something that Margaret started with. with a, if I was going to offer a PowerPoint, this would have been my first slide. Uh, my brother-in-law uh, uh, announced his engagement uh, by sending out a photo of a famous fiance uh, caught in midair as they left off the railing of a balcony. Um, uh, and uh, I assume I wasn't there, probably landing on a trampoline. It was a, it was a, it was a perfect picture, it was a very dramatic picture because it represented the leap of faith that's involved in uh, starting a marriage. Well, a leap of faith is going to be involved in uh, starting Social Security. Um, it's going to take a group of Republicans and Democrats uh, sitting down together, working out a deal, figuring out how to defend it, and, and going out and selling it. You know. um, maybe if you like the Gang of Six, sell the Gang of Five, uh, maybe uh, another commission. I don't know how it's going to happen, but so before there's an engagement, there has to be some data. Uh, the advantages of getting together over healthcare, over uh, living, uh, advantages of getting together over living alone, um, could not be clearer than it, than it was, than it is after Tuesday's election. Uh, one party can reform an entitlement program uh, alone if you're adding benefits, but two parties are necessary to uh, uh, to, to reduce benefits. Uh, so let me talk about just first what would make a romance attractive to uh, then, you know, what Democrats could bring to a relationship. And finally, how the two parties could consummate the deal. Um, making Social Security reform attractive to Democrats may seem human. Uh, you know, it's true that there's a debate in the Democratic Party over whether to put off uh, Social Security's long-term financing problems. Uh, or uh, some say we should do it now or do it soon, but we, you know, we don't know exactly when. Um, so I want to talk about that separately. Those who say do it soon, but are not sure when. Uh, the, the procrastinators may actually get uh, uh, some uh, uh, religion after they, uh, some, after the deal develops. But any long-term relationship is going to start with those who have their eyes squarely on the future. So there are at least four progressive arguments for reforming Social Security. Uh, first of all, without reform, entitlement spending will crowd out public defenses. Uh, and delaying reform will cost money. Reform um, can reduce or even eliminate poverty amongst the elderly, as Andrew Sawyer pointed out. And finally, reform can fix Social Security forever. So let me take those one by one. Um, the impact of entitlements on public investment can be summarized by two numbers, 46 cents and 70 cents. 
1990, 46 cents of every federal dollar was spent on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and investments, uh, interest on the debt. In 2030, that's going to be 7 cents. Winning the economic future depends on progressive public investments, innovation, children's health care, education, research, teen pregnancy prevention, space exploration, and infrastructure. But left on autopilot, the nation's budget is going to be swamped with entitlement and debt obligations that will crowd out everything else. <coughs> you know, scraps are will be left on the table for defense and discretionary spending, but uh, um, as a progressive Democrat, you know, I, I'm a fear who's going to win that battle. Um, the poverty issue is straightforward. You know, one in seven elderly still live in poverty despite Social Security's success. And benefit changes in Social Security could reduce or eliminate poverty among the elderly. The delay of reform is uh, going to make harder, make it harder to do, as Andrew pointed out. It would, in fact, you know, uh, according to the Social Security trustees, be twice as hard if we wait until the trust fund is insolvent. That means uh, tax increases that are twice as big and benefit cuts that are twice as big. Every year of delay costs the American public real money. It is within our power to fix Social Security not just for the next generation, but for all generations. Uh, if the um, there are no more trustees' reports uh, predicting uh, bankruptcy. The political debate over the stability of Social Security would be over forever. And hundreds of Social Security policy analysts like Andrew and me would be out of job forever. Not a bad not a bad um, <coughs> So since the ideas I've discussed largely have been aimed at attracting Democrats, I'm going to assume that most of you here uh, have not been struck by love at first sight. Uh, in fact, you're probably asking, well, what's in it for us? Uh, let me suggest there's at least a couple of things um, to, to consider on the Republican side. Political cover from Democrats and keeping taxes low. Democrats have created Social Security, so we're more trusted in reform. But instead of exploiting our natural advantage on that issue for partisan gain, Democrats could provide needed legitimacy to reform in general and to specific proposals as well. Uh, so how can we keep taxes low? Well, Third Way believes in a savings-led solution to Social Security. Uh, we believe that the reform should produce about $2 in spending reductions for every dollar in tax increase. On the benefits side, we would do this by adjusting COLAs for making a better measure of inflation. We would uh, index the retirement age so that the average life expectancy at retirement uh, was uh, held constant as, uh, and remained about the same as, as since the uh, 1980s in order to provide about 17 to 18 years of retirement on average. We would also adjust the benefits in a progressive way, make them a little more generous at the low end of the income range and a little more generous at the high end. I'm sorry, a little high more generous, reverse, more generous at the low end and a little less generous at the high end. And on the revenue side, yeah, I know, it's for a minute you're You're really Democrat. On the revenue side, we would increase the taxation of benefits for higher income seniors and phase out the benefits altogether. Uh, for individuals with incomes over 250000 uh, and couples over 40000 In addition, we would increase the taxable limit on incomes so that the limit covers, uh, once again, about 90% of workers' wages. We think that keeping the benefit changes to a minimum while also making them more progressive will show that reform does not require a huge tax increase. Moreover, we need to keep the spotlight on the threat of public uh, time spending that it poses to public investment. Our approach, which is similar to the Bipartisan Fiscal Commission proposal, doesn't eliminate the need for a tax increase, but it is a strong counter to the revenue-only solutions up from the far left. So how can we consummate a deal? Uh, the Social Security plan we'll hear about shortly from Senator Lindsey Graham 
has a lot of the virtues that uh, will appeal to forward-thinking Democrats. There's less consumption spending that leaves room for public investment. It uh, gives more progressive benefits, and it's a permanent fix. Moreover, it doesn't do anything to privatize Social Security. But it's not balanced with any kind of revenue. Increase. I'd like to see this as an opening bid uh, for developing a long-term relationship. But there needs to be a stronger acknowledgement that the two sides can actually get together. So when might this happen? Well, sooner or later, Washington is going to face a mandate uh, from the American people and the international markets to actually reduce its long-term structural debt. This mandate, as Andrew indicated, would be the result of a fiscal or economic crisis. But one way to avoid this is to adopt the spirit of compromise uh, that the public clearly wants to see now on budget issues. <coughs> a big budget deal on entitlements and taxes may not, unfortunately, happen before the next year in this election. But both sides can start now by talking about a you-give-we-give approach. For example, Democrats could give on federal pensions. Uh, that's their way it's proposed, and the vice president's uh, uh, group is considering. And then Republicans could give on closing some tax reforms. But the, what's clear is the alternatives won't work. Spending cut solutions only produce uns unsustainable cuts in basic government, like air traffic control and the FBI. And taxing the rich doesn't work because uh, the rich don't have that much money. We just released a report on that uh, this morning. Uh, so, you know, most marriages work on an I give, you give solutions. Uh, and although my wedding, uh, sorry, my marriage, uh, my wife tells me what I'm supposed to give. Uh, so, regardless of what ends up sparking a relationship over Social Security, right, let's maybe make a plan in a couple of years to get together and celebrate uh, a bipartisan solution to save Social Security. Optimistic. Um, 
I don't really mean it. I'm pretty pessimistic as well. But I'm going to do my best to kind of sketch out the positive scenarios. Um, but I do, on Social Security, I do see an opening right now. Um, because one of the things, I mean, I'm always, whenever I talk to folks on the Hill or talk to the White House, I urge them to get out there and get specific. And I think that that's the important way to put real ideas on the table. Um, and I don't really uh, admire being sort of too timid and not saying what you would do. But the fact is that in Paul Ryan's budget, where he has been very specific on what he would do in Social Security before, he wasn't specific. And the White House wasn't specific on what they would do on Social Security. But both of them opened it up with the framework, saying we do need to make changes. These are the, the White House gave these principles, and they kind of bugged me because they said what they wouldn't do instead of what they would do. But they left some openings for things that they would do. And, and the Ryan budget put out a really interesting framework for if, uh, if it's on an unsustainable course, changes would have to be made. And I have to admit that from a political perspective, this is probably very clever, because neither of them have turned this into the punching bag of this election, right? Medicare is getting all the heat, and Social Security is kind of sliding under the radar. Um, and wouldn't it be remarkable if, as part of some kind of a deal, before the election, a group of people came together and started working on Social Security reform? Um, one of the reasons I actually think this is really important, so everything, all the focus on the debt ceiling right now, and we recently put out a paper saying we could see basically a trillion dollars over 10 years in kind of low-hanging fruit areas where there's agreement between both parties on domestic discretionary caps and kind of the other entitlement areas for reform. And you could get a down payment. But the more I've been talking recently to folks in the markets, and I, I don't think the markets speak with one voice at all, but so many people have been saying um, a tr it's not the number that matters. What people really understand is that entitlements are the unsustainable piece. And if we can't get a grand bargain kind of deal, like something that the Fiscal Commission did, the $4 trillion plus kind of big comprehensive plan, uh, I think the next best plan is not just a down payment of the easiest areas, but some fundamental entitlement reform. And that's what I think would be reassuring, that the U.S. can actually do something hard. Because one of the risks is, is, is that if this Biden process, um, and I don't want to stop them, because if they can find a trillion dollars in savings, that's terrific. But one of the risks is that they kind of take the easiest areas of the budget to fix and don't deal with the entitlements. And that means post-election, the kind of big fix that's facing us is all the harder, because it's just Social Security, Medicare, and taxes. That, you know, that, that's, that's leaving the hardest pieces for later. So I wonder if there's a possibility there. Uh, the second thing is the obvious case that anybody who looks at this knows that with every year we wait, it does become more difficult. It makes it much more uh, hard. To, you, you can't face these things in a gradual way, uh, and that's not good from anybody's perspective. So there's such a strong case to make changes as quickly as possible. Um, I also think, as everybody has sort of pointed out, Social Security really is the easier one. I remember when I was in graduate school focusing on fiscal policy and the deficit was, was eliminated. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I've come back to study worrying about fiscal problems. Oh, good, there's entitlements. Um, and at, <laughs> quick look, um, at Social Security and Medicare, it was no tough choice that I wanted to study Social Security and work on that one for my master's thesis and beyond because it was so much easier to fix. Um, and it still is. You know, there are only a couple moving pieces, whether it's the retirement age, thinking about benefit reductions, you can either think about them done across the board or progressively at the high end. Uh, any new revenue increases? Probably some kinds of sweeteners. I think almost all plans now look at ways to boost a minimum benefit. And another idea is sort of an old age, old age benefit. So that when people hit 85 or so, they get a little bit more money to avert old age poverty. Um, so those kinds of sweeteners. 
Uh, I think carve-out accounts, there's no fiscal space for them anymore, but I think add-on add accounts are still something that could help with the overall retirement problem, which uh, is very important to think about. Uh, and maybe looking at the program to get rid of some of the outdated issues, spousal benefits, performing housing, GI works, things like that. But it's not that hard a puzzle to put together. There are not that many ways to do it. So I want to talk about uh, where I would go. And I guess I can see two arguments. I think both of them were made, actually. Um, my personal preference is to do as much of this as possible on the spending side. I think it just, there's such a strong case for why um, if we were to bring down benefits aggressively for people at the high end, uh, to me, that's actually the combination. You know, I sit, sit in the middle, and it combines the uh, Republican or conservative preference for keeping spending, bringing spending down and not using taxes to fix this, and it combines the progressive perspective of making a program more progressive. The problem, of course, and you usually run into this on the left, is that there's such resistance to means testing or calling it something less jarring, but slowing the growth of benefits for high-income people because people worry that will undermine the support for the system. Uh, you know, a program that's just for the poor is poor program. We haven't seen evidence of that in the past. The fastest growing programs have been Medicaid and EITCs that are actually programs for low-income people. And I think Social Security changing it more into a program that's there if you need it frees up resources for so many other important priorities. You really have to look at it this way. Would you rather spend a dollar on somebody who doesn't necessarily need it for retirement, or we could battle it out. We want to use that dollar to fix the deficit, uh, cut taxes, or spend more on safety net programs and public investments. I would pretty much take any of those as opposed to using for retirement benefits for somebody who doesn't need it. I made the unfortunate story or case recently. I was meeting with a very progressive congressman, and I always used to like, I like to use my father as the punching bag for Social Security benefits for people who don't need it. So I said this story. I said, you know, why do we need to give benefits to people who don't need them, like my father, uh, who is, you know, always traveling around the country. Right now he's on a trip to Cuba, and the guy's face fell. And I said, oh my gosh, you're still not allowed to go to Cuba, are you? <laughs> Turns out you're not. So don't be annoyed at this story. Um, I really need to pick a new poster child to go to. <laughs> um, but to me, there's such a strong case for making Social Security more progressive through benefit reductions. I would also go look towards the retirement age because it's not just about saving money for Social Security. It's good for the economy. So when we think about budgetary issues, it can so easily become kind of just a mathematical thing, getting the numbers to add up. But the fiscal consolidation efforts we're going to have to go through in this country are going to be immensely challenging. They could have a very damaging effect on the economy, not as damaging as doing nothing because the huge debt overhang is such a large threat. But you want to do it in a way that's smart. That means if you raise any revenue for Social Security or something else, you want to do it in a way that fundamentally reforms the tax code and doesn't harm the economy. If and when you cut spending, you want to protect productive investments as much as possible. Another thing that's consistent with economic growth and good fiscal policy is raising the retirement age because it helps keep people in the labor market longer. And that's going to be one of the challenges we have for growth going forward. So finding ways to be more flexible and encouraging people to work longer I think Andrew's right about not having payroll tax after 62. Uh, those are policies that are kind of the twofers out there. So I think that's another important issue. At the same time that I would fix as much of it as possible through benefit cuts for the well-off and raising the retirement age, I would reform the payroll tax, not necessarily in a way that raises revenue, but in a way that does make it more progressive. Because I think that that's one of the ways that you could get more progressives bought into a, a plan for reform, because the payroll tax is a tax that's very regressive, that hits people in the first dollar. You could work in an overall reform of the tax 
um, that could be consistent with building a larger group of support. So that's my preference. Raise retirement age, cut benefits as much as possible to high end. There's three models for that, really. Slow the growth of benefits, give a flat rate benefit, or give no benefit at the high end at all. There are pros and cons of all of them. I would, I would have no benefit if possible, though it does harm work incentives somewhat. The flat benefit's probably the easiest to do. Um, and I think slowing the growth uh, may be the one that you sort of gradually get into this area of, of reducing benefits progressively. That all said, we're not going to pass a Social Security plan that's benefit cuts only anytime soon. We're just not. And so the problem with sort of my preference or this focus on fixing Social Security on one side only is that it means delay will cause so many years of loss, it's not at all clear when we get a deal done. So I think a more practical way to think about it is where's the compromise? And I think what we just heard about sort of spaces for compromise, um, I don't think we should be talking about 50-50, but I think that revenue should be part of the solution if that's what's necessary to get something done. But it should be done probably in that context of fundamentally reforming the payroll tax as much as possible, finding some new revenues to go in the system, but focusing primarily on a structure that will <coughs> benefits. Um, so what I would like to see is um, some more plans um, on the left that we could use to then compromise uh, with something like what Lindsey Graham has put out there and others. Uh, what I would like to see is people looking more closely at suggestions like that of the Fiscal Commission um, that is, I think, maybe revenue heavy, but is a good opening bid. Um, and what I'd really like to see, which is what I'm not going to hold out hope for, but here's my secret hope for the year, is a bipartisan Bicameral. You know it sounds crazy in this in this political environment. But what if you just had a small working group of folks from the House and the Senate of both parties starting to talk through these issues? It is not that hard to put this together. Uh, it would be really useful because the case is so strong that every year that we delay to get this done uh, really makes it harder to fix in the end. So am I optimistic? No, not at all. But I can certainly see so many paths for reform that I would sign on to in a second just to get it done. So I think that there must be um, a lot of support for at least to have some momentum and get discussions going. Thank you. We're now it's your turn. Uh, questions? Uh, thanks, Margaret. I'm the father of a disabled child, especially I've seen this system, the sausage. Ask any one of us who has been through it, we can give you some simple reform that everyone would agree on. Second, uh, especially on the saving side, it prohibits any special needs child that is capable of working from ever earning any money. <clears throat> Second, as far as what's real in terms of my income, Every year, that child will either cost me $20,000 or $100,000. So there's got to be, this means testing has to be, especially with its dependence, has to be reported. Second, I see the big think tanks out there, and yet you really don't include those institutions that have had the best knowledge in terms of turning wards of state into productive citizens. Not. I mean, there, there are a number of them out there. And yet, and they have the best knowledge, because we are still right now for the disabled in the 1930s in terms of employment. That's the level we are currently at. 
to find a political solution. If you use a disabled model, the social security side of it, politically, will never have the same resonance as the disabled. Use the disabled as the catalyst for the change. Because the American public will always, in its charitable nature, fall in line if you have a number of people, whether it's veterans, the elderly, and you use that as the catalyst because you can find a reform there. And just the reforming sufficiency of Social Security. What's the definition of savings just there? So, you know, as someone who's spent the past 50 odd years working with the disabled side of this financial question, including those groups in your discussion, you'll find the political will to get your solutions. Just a I'm going to have to leave in a couple minutes after you go testify, but a, a, a quick thought on disability. I mean, and you're right, it doesn't get touched on enough. In the, in the proposals we put together for the Peterson Foundation, I included the material on disability. My gut, though, on disability is it's a little bit like prevention on uh, health care stuff. In the sense that you can fix it to make it a better program, I don't think it's going to save the taxpayer a ton of money. Uh, once people go on disability, social security disability, they almost never get off. And the reason is that you know, if, you, if you earn just a little bit of money, you get basically booted off the program. So we, we do total disability, we don't do partial disability. And that locks people into a bad state of affairs. The problem though is if you start doing partial disability, well in a sense that's going to encourage the disabled to work more, and that's good for them, it's also going to encourage more people to claim disability. The people who are on the margins are now going to claim disability. I'm, I, 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 you may doubt it, but I, I don't have a ton of doubt that you're going to get more people claiming. So, see, so play that off in the money sense. It may be good policy to do. The same prevention is good policy on healthcare. I would be reluctant to, to say you're gonna, how much money you're going to save by doing it. So I, I don't know. It, it, deserves, it deserves more attention than it's gotten, but that's, that's my, my work. Any other comments? Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the, uh, the ideas here. Um, I want to go to the other side of, of my uh, friend Rick's uh, point, and that is how do we avoid uh, making this a generational conflict? Um, I have two daughters in their late 30s, and uh, I certainly want the best for them. They are totally sanguine about never seeing Social Security. And so if we're going to save this program, how do, how do we make sure that uh, folks like me, who are already collecting, um, you know, are with progressive ideas, which I totally support, uh, are not you know, fighting our children over uh, adding to the program? Uh, what ideas do you have about the, the sort of the PR psychological side of this? I think it's a great opportunity for Democrats. I mean, every voters don't think it's going to be there. Reforming will mean it is there. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a natural advantage. Uh, as far as the, the uh, free baby voter generation problem, I don't know. I think we've kind of lost. <laughs> we lost that thousand, frankly. Uh, uh, we were sort of saving for Social Security, and then we kind of weren't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think that's why another argument you should do as much on the benefit side as possible. I think that sort of 
protecting people who are already on Social Security is in general a good idea, but, but everyone's going to take some sacrifice. So I think that's why we support doing the inflation on it. It's a small hit on fair beneficiaries. Uh, so, you know, there's there's more complicated sort of analysis there, but I think that's, uh, I think kind of the, kind of, his ship is already passed almost, unfortunately, because we kind of lost opportunity. So the important thing is to protect it for kids who are, who are don't think it's going to be there, you know, tomorrow. I think that's a great question because it's sort of, it's one of those elephants in the room that nobody wants to talk about, the generational kind of trade-offs and this whole fiscal fix. Uh, and there's one group that's at the table, seniors, and there's one group that just refuses to come to the table, young people. I started off in this world in, in my 20s sort of working on a, a, a group, Third Millennium, which tried to get young people involved in fiscal issues. Uh, you know, we get 11 members. It was, it was we went up against the AARP as often as possible, but uh, nobody heard us. And, then, you know, and that's, that's how it's probably going to be for some time. And if you look at what the political promises are, you start every conversation about how we're not going to touch current retirees and everybody nods, it's okay, you know, never mind my father, Shh, don't tell a story, but then, you know, yeah. and it's always been we're not going to touch people under 55, and that's been, how long has that been a promise now? 10 years, right? Yeah. So if we had fixed this a while ago, at least we would have had some of the baby booms who are involved in the fix. Um, and then when we finally get to this, we'll water that down, because somebody will say, well, nobody will, you know, 40. Well, 40, and it's going to be zero. There's no one alive today is going to be affected. It's going to be sort of this huge unraveling of all the political promises. So, um, and then I think the other point of that is once the baby boomers are fully in retirement, there will be a lot more asks. The pressure will not just be how do you have Social Security and Medicare contribute to the fiscal fix, which they obviously have to because they're the fastest growing programs and they're the most pressure on the budget. It will be how do we keep them from expanding more? I mean, there has been no inflation. There was a, a, I'm not sure if you talked about this before I came in, but there was an excessive bump up in Social Security benefits and then no inflation, so we didn't have coal adjustments, so benefits didn't catch up. And before that statement had been made, you know, there are multiple offers on the floor to offer special $250 checks to seniors. Um, you don't hear those kinds of promises to investments in, in the next generation. You just don't. Um, so it's a terrific question to which I have no answer. I'm really worried about it. And it's considered impolite to sort of talk about this as generational tensions. Um, you know, it's sort of like talking about rationing in healthcare or things that are real, but we can't talk about them in policy circles. Um, that is a huge trade-off. We are choosing to have a budget that is very consumption-oriented instead of investment-oriented. And that is primarily driven by the fact that we devote so many resources uh, to the elderly, whether they need them or not. Um, and shortchange the investments in the next generation, which is not a long-term strategy. One quick final point before I sprint the door, which I think I agree with Maya. It's, I mean, let's say you're a fairly liberal Democrat who thinks, you know, on policy terms, the best way to fix this program is by raising taxes. That's, that's perfectly fine. So political strategy is wait. The longer you wait, every day you wait, somebody shifts at a rate of 10000 per day from being a taxpayer into the program, a beneficiary taking out of the program, politically time is on their side. So they see this as doing well by doing good. By something that's good for me politically, demagogue, delay, also happens to lead to better policy. So you've got a real problem in there, and that's why I'm asking that. So I have to connect. Thank you very much. Thank you, panel. One comment on the generational thing. I took a break from being a ways and means staffer and taught for a while. 
when the kids would come into my economic class and say, Ms. Hustell, there's something wrong with my paycheck. No, <laughs> <laughs> there isn't. And then I tell them what it was, and then their faces would like fall. And uh, now those kids have graduated from college, and they're having trouble finding jobs. So they're the other thump on the younger generation. They're not even paying into the system, and they're, they're having a delay in getting started. Uh, it just shows the magnitude of this whole thing. Thank you so much. Margaret, thank you. Panel, thank you very much.